welcome back to Daylight Robbery. This is a podcast where we discuss topical issues and current economic questions with guest speakers. Our podcast has a special focus on inequality and in particular wealth inequality. For this episode we are lucky enough to have the pleasure of discussing discussing economic questions with David Ski. David is currently Professor of Finance at the Warwick Business School. So David, would you like to introduce yourself and give a bit of an introduction to your background and experiences? Yes, uh, hi, yeah, David, and it's great to see you both and be with you, and great pleasure to, to be on your podcast. Um, I, I grew up in the US and went to school there. Um, I did a little bit of work in the, the private sector in finance and uh, I got a PhD, then went to the New York Fed. I was there for several years during the, the 2008 financial crisis and then moved to academia in the US. And a couple of years ago, moved to the UK where I'm at uh, Warwick Business School. Um, to start off with, we'd just like to ask about, because we know that you worked in the Federal Reserve from 2004 to 2014. We wanted to ask, um, how was your experience, because effectively that was the time during the financial crisis in which you, you worked there, what was your experiences of being in the Fed during this like tantamount time in financial history like? The, there had been so many decades basically since the Great Depression in the US and the West of uh, major developed countries without financial crises. It was really presumed that financial crises just didn't happen in developing countries or developed countries and it was only a concern for maybe developing emerging market countries so the crisis even though a few people saw and kind of argued that that it was a risk was really a major surprise mostly for the fed as well as you know wall street and finance and governments and so it was uh you know it was kind of a shocking uh occurrence and i think there really was a, a sense that we could have another worldwide great depression um and it was an all hands on deck and what was um your role at this time in the fed like what was your if you could walk us through like your day-to-day kind of activities and things i was in the the research group at the new york fed and my area was called money and payment studies so we really uh, focused our, uh, a lot of research and our policy on payment systems that for uh, retail as well as within the banking system. And we would also support the, the market desk, which did end up ultimately implementing um, lots of the Fed's lender of last resort policies to well beyond banks to the whole financial system and the economy. And so day to day, we would do research or uh, maybe just be spending time on working on policy briefings and and meetings to support the the policymakers, the the president of the New York Fed and the Federal Market Committee, the FOMC. Great, thanks for that brief overview of your role at the Fed. Now, given this podcast has such a strong focus on inequality, and in particular wealth inequality, I think we probably should have started with this. But what are your views? How do you, how do you think about inequality? 
I like to think about it in a couple different ways, just to lay out. Um, first of all, the the main economic measure of wealth inequality, and it's called the Gini coefficient, is is the basic way of looking at you know how much are say roughly the one percent of making versus the the ninety nine percent or the lower you know. So I think it's always important, though, to keep in mind not just wealth inequality, meaning the distribution of wealth and how much is going to the highest percentile versus uh, the average person, but also to just ask about standard of living for the average and the lower income people. How would you measure that standard of living? Like what kind well, of measures? Well, on a worldwide, yeah. where I really care about wealth inequality is in the, the poor, less developed parts of the world. So things just like pulling people out of poverty, right? The, uh, the World Bank has often used, you know, basic metrics like the number of people in the world living on less than a dollar a day less than two dollars a day so i think you know that's like first and foremost people living in extreme poverty um and then i think next up is you know people living um in in poverty but i i, I think there's you know there's argument there's issues for both sides i think mm -hmm. Talking about extreme poverty and then poverty matters, um, but within a society, you're tackling extreme poverty and poverty. This is can be a problem for society if people are really discontent and angry. It doesn't necessarily support a good democracy and a good rule of law. And so I think for the longer term, that's an issue. But then there's there's a second way of talking about inequality on the right, often looks at it as are people, you know, or kind of presuming or arguing that people are getting paid the value they bring to society. An argument there would be, well, okay, we want to make sure people have equal opportunity, but also we want to, you know, we want people to be uh, empowered to you know, do well for themselves. Uh, you know, a big focus on incentives. And so if you, if you try to just take away from those who do well, then you're limiting their incentives, you're going to limit growth. And the question is, are people, you know, if people make a million or a hundred million, does that really change their incentives? And, and even if they, you know, deserve it, is that, you know, the social compact, is that really fair? And people on the right will understand that if you have too much disparity, that you ultimately have a, uh, you know, to have a democratic system and to have uh, stability, 
Uh, there has to be a sense of fairness. In the part of the U.S. relies on the argument that while those who make a lot of money, perhaps they will, and they often do, use that in uh, charitable ways, and so the argument, say Bill Gates. Uh, people who are these multi-billionaires and they start foundations and they might spend that money in charitable ways in smarter ways than um you know government you know how much how much gets lost in the bureaucracy and the politics to not kind of do well in the world on the left side right there's much more of a sense of there's a pie and not only some people are getting bigger shares of the pie at expense of others where you know, within a company, the CEOs, the managers are entrenched and able to give themselves huge salaries and bonuses and keeping labor wages in their company down below what they could and deserve to be getting. Just on that note about bankers bonuses, which leads us quite nicely onto our next topic of discussion, which is about the banker bonus tax imposed during the 2008 financial crisis. The UK's plan to put a 50% tax on bank bonuses will give banks a proverbial Sophie's choice. Do you punish the shareholders or do you punish employees? So in the UK, after the financial crisis, there was a bonus tax. And this was when a 50% tax was placed on bankers' bonuses of more than 25,000 or around 40,700 US dollars. So David, we would like to ask, what was your opinions on this tax and the effects it had on inequality? And should this be reintroduced indefinitely? Just to note, the tax was, um imposed in 2008 so just following the financial crisis yeah i think the financial crisis in 2008 was a special occasion and i think the actions in the uk and in the us were basically in a large sense of them bailing out the banking system and bailing out banks and doing that to try to prevent another world recession. The way I look at it is by doing that, you've kept the pie as opposed to if there had been a worldwide collapse and the pie had been shrunk. And so I think everybody at all levels, uh, whether the working uh, classes, the, the wealthier, the bankers, benefited and so by bailing out the banks which was kind of essential the banks themselves the bankers got a large share of this what you'd call this surplus this extra amount that's kind of kept so i think in that sense there was it was fair to try to say and i think looking both at bankers bonuses as well as right, the equity stockholders of the banks, mm -hmm. they got this big benefit. And I think it's fair in principle 
to say, well, you should share a little bit more of the surplus. And I think the reason that this type of banker's bonus tax and such um, didn't occur in the US, whereas it occurred in the UK, was the sense that even in 2009, when kind of crisis is averted, it was still a very you know severe recession, weak economy, and the thinking was the banks are not really back that strong yet. They're surviving, and so we don't want to you know muck up with the banks because we want them to be strong, provide credit for a stronger recovery. So you'd argue that the the bonus tax would take away some of the incentives which could leave the banking sector in an unstable position in 2009? I don't, there's, there's a saying about taxes. um, If you, if you muck around with taxes here and there, and it creates kind of uncertainty and whatnot, um, or if you push people out of the banking sector and they can just go join hedge funds where they can maybe get around a lot of income taxes and bonus taxes because they're, they're actually owning the equity and getting capital gain returns. It can be hard to put in taxes for that kind of windfall gain, say in the bankers, in a sense that don't cause bigger problems. So I think it was prudent in the US not to try to do uh, banker sector. The one difference is that literally in Wall Street, uh, in, in finances, you know, within the US, Ben Bernanke is the head of the Fed, and within the UK, the following, the, the measures, the similar measures that happened Wall Street and banks, they knew the crisis had been averted and they knew that it could have all been a lot worse. So I think if there was one time to say, hey, um, you know, pay back a little bit of, of the surplus you got, that could have been the time. But it, it was it was risky. So you'd argue that the only disadvantages would be kind of the the golden handcuffs theory, right? And to not want to discourage these talented individuals from moving out of the banking sector. Would that be like the kind of only argument against why the US didn't implement the banker bonus tax? I think the other argument is that another saying of the best tax is an old tax, Mm -hmm. meaning that there, to the extent there's distortions and t- caused by taxes in the economy, then if you're always putting in, if every time there's a different political party and they're kind of raising taxes and lowering taxes, then that's also kind of inefficient. So I think if you can just put in this one-time tax and everybody knows it's kind of fair, reasonable, because the banks got bailed out, that in principle is fine. But the problem is when it becomes political and then people are arguing and every, you know, is this an ongoing thing? And then the next political party will try to reverse it. And that kind of volunteer, volatility, not having an agreement on the longer term 
is another potential issue. What do you think about the government taxing bankers' bonuses indefinitely? How do you think that would impact inequality and would this be a sensible measure to take? People are going to try to find ways around that. And so a big reason in, in banking and finance especially uh, that it's problematic to try to single them out is that they can move to hedge funds, to private equity, where they're equity owners, and so they're getting capital gains, and then in general trying to tax the financial sec sector beyond uh, you know, pay and bonuses is of course they're going to try to find lots of ways to to hide their money um and or at least legally structure it so that it's not susceptible to tax and so even if you come up with something you think that is fair and that is you know equitable or or that is um appropriate and 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 it's not going to hurt um incentives you're still going to face a difficulty and so we've got to really think a you know you got to think about marginal rates if you're in the uh in the u.s at times as early as world war one the u.s had just introduced income tax and and we're taxing people uh, on a maybe 70% marginal basis at the highest income tax levels. Just to pick up on your point about the income tax, do you think that um, like financial corporations, like you mentioned, private equities and and hedge funds, do you think that it's unfair that they're, they're charged capital gains tax when that's their kind of do you think that that should be charged at income tax, which is obviously a higher tax bracket? So the the, the general economics argument is made that is made is that it's better to tax income than capital gains, and that's the argument for having lower capital gains taxes as well as lower corporation corporate taxes than income taxes. And when say hedge fund managers or others who have, you know, even CEOs who have large, uh, large, you know, wealth created through holding equity are being taxed very, uh, you know, relatively low on that or for say hedge funds on there, what's called their carried interest, um, maybe not at all. They're they're not maybe taxed, and to, uh, as long as you're you're holding paper gains. Thank you for that, David. Um, so this moves us moves us onto our next sort of question that's similar. So because of the oil prices and oil companies, they have benefited a lot from this and from the pandemic. And our question is, do you think there should be a windfall tax on these oil companies? And for our listeners, a windfall tax is a tax levied by governments against certain industries when economic conditions allow those industries to experience above average profits. 
So yeah, this is actually a, a parallel to the uh, financial crisis and the big, uh, uh, in a sense, uh, windfall or the big gains and bonuses the bankers made uh, by the version of the 2008 financial crisis. However, windfall taxes, say when it comes to oil and energy, are are things that occur not often, but you know maybe uh, once a decade. And so, again, in principle, if you just see this windfall uh, because uh, oil energy prices kind of unexpectedly, uh, it looks tempting to put in a tax and and take a lot of this, you know, away. The problem is that, you know, long run, oil prices sometimes really tank. And so, you know, if oil prices are sometimes $20 a barrel, sometimes over $100 a barrel, then you want the investors in energy to have some sense of, uh, you know, reaping some upsides make up for their downside just on that point would you kind of say that if the government would like to impose a windfall tax that they should kind of do the same in the event of a huge downturn they should kind of insure these um north sea oil companies for a bit of that money so that yeah that that would be a counter argument and so the problem is if the government's getting into the business of kind of insuring big companies um, on the downside against the upside. I mean, that's something that, you know, companies and the financial system can do really well on their own for the most part. Um, and so putting the government in charge of that is, I, I think is helpful when there are truly unexpected Times such as the 2008 financial crisis. A lot of people really didn't think something like that could happen. But when it comes to oil and energy, these are, you know, we see the cycles over the last 50 years, and it's pretty clear we're going to have these cycles. And so it's it's better to let the, the financial system corporations um, have a sense. And, and perhaps if there are really unexpected windfalls time to time, that could be an argument to put in place. But it's better if you kind of have a, a sense of what the policies are. So, you know, take a counterexample. Let's say mm -hmm. if green energy um, is being developed, and, uh, you know, so, some investor makes a breakthrough, um, whether it's, you know, improving efficiency in, in solar or wind or uh, hydro or, or thermal, deep thermal, um, battery storage, uh, you know, massive storage, transportation. If the investors are thinking like, well, if I strike it rich, I might lose half half my upside to the government, then, you know, it's, it's not the individuals per se, it's really the, the massive investment you need 
um, by stockholders and or, or or private equity investors, and so that's that's the potential risk. So you're saying it could decentivize um, companies from from like doing their best if they think that the government's going to take a part of their profits, basically. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the argument. And so in terms of the cost of living crisis and the fact that energy prices, especially now, are, are soaring, um, I wanted to ask you about um, specifically the the UK, um, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, the current Chancellor, his measures to combat this have kind of included um, a national insurance cut and a cut in fuel duty. So do you think that this measure is the most effective way of alleviating the burden on the poor? than it would be to, say, impose a windfall tax? So I, I think, you know, from the economist's point of view, uh, it would be nice to think of, you know, individuals, households, as being able to you know, hedge their risk of large increases in energy their prices that they face. Um, I mean, that's something that, that companies have a much more means to do than um, than individuals and households. I mean, so that there there is much more of an argument from an economic point of view that the government can maybe really help out on this. And it's again a uh, a question of you know if this is a one time um, unexpected event, you really want to help. If it, you know, to take a different example, um, in the U.S., there's there's a lot of government insurance for coastal areas, such as in Florida, where people build houses, and there's hurricanes, and they couldn't get private insurance to build these houses because the insurance companies just wouldn't provide that. And so the government steps in to help. But what it really does is it supports people building houses that's just not affordable. And so on energy, if everybody thought every time energy prices went up, they're gonna get a cutback, well, people aren't gonna be as concerned about being as energy efficient, right? Whether it's on your appliances, whether it's on the cars you buy, so again, if it's to the extent it's kind of a one-time, really unexpected thing, then I think trying to get a, a, a price cut or rebate, lowering the cost to households makes sense. But to the extent that energy prices do fluctuate and we want people to have reasons, incentives to be energy efficient in the long run, um, we have to be careful. So you'd kind of take the approach that um, whatever the chancellor has done thus far, like the two hundred pound loan that he's given, um, like consumers uh, on their energy bills, that cut, which which is a loan, um, is a better approach than perhaps raising that four billion from a windfall tax. Uh, yeah. So and I think a loan is a nice way, in a sense, of structuring it, because you are saying that okay. You know, we want to smooth out and give you some relief right now. Um, 
but yeah, it'll it'll come at the cops uh, a little later. Uh, even that might be kind of distortionary in that you're not necessarily giving every. I mean, when when energy prices are high right now, and they will for the next months, uh, year or or so, then that does reflect in part there's a lack of energy and you do want people to be a little price sensitive and conserve a little bit uh for the moment so it's still not perfect um and it, it's tempting to link lowering energy prices for households from something like the windfall tax and they're obviously uh two sides of the same coin at the moment. It's just important to, you know, ask what are the, the unintended consequences uh, whenever the, the government's uh, putting in changing policies. In terms of the citizens of the UK being kind of one of the worst countries with saving rates, how do you think that this £200 loan which has to be paid over the next five years is going to affect wealth inequality, bearing in mind that these consumers are taking on credit to pay for their rising energy costs and they're already in a situation where they don't have much disposable income to spare, really. Yeah, that might be a reasonable thing, helpful thing to do. But true, you're not going after the source or the, the discrepancy in wealth right, inequality. You could argue that the, the profits from this are just going straight into shareholders' pockets in the form of dividends and things, which are directly increasing, because obviously these like lower-income households are directly not benefiting from this rise in energy prices. So you could argue that this is a massive event that's taking place right now that we could possibly see, obviously with more data, that's really increasing that wealth inequality. Right. And so I think from a, yeah, from a static point of view, um, there's a desire, there's an argument to say uh, somebody's really gaining at the expense of others. And so, you know, another, another example, say price gouging is, you know, t- take a simple experience. It starts raining and pouring and everybody runs into the local uh store uh to grab a a cheap umbrella and they have have limited umbrellas and so instead of charging a couple of pounds they say i'll i'll sell these to whoever wants to pay me 20 pounds well that seems unfair that seems like price gout um and so no let's not let them raise the price well, we could say instead of that, okay, they charge 20 pounds, but all the stores that are making this windfall, right, that, that has mm-hmm. to be paid back um, through a windfall tax on these umbrellas to to, to everybody who's, who's running in and buying an umbrella. So for a one-time event, doing a windfall tax makes sense to subsidize energy prices for individuals but we you know it's important to just look at the incentives when this is expected to occur on a regular basis then you know people aren't going to be as energy efficient 
and the companies are maybe going to be disincentivized if they're not getting the the, the upside. So yeah, I think on a, on a one-time basis for windfall, it uh, it makes sense, but we have to ask if this is uh, unexpected or if these are expected cycles and what the bad unintended consequences will be going forward. So I kind of want to make you pick a side now, like in this particular situation, would you impose a windfall tax or not? I think there has to be an argument. And I think the financial crisis in 2008, I saw a real argument that widely unexpected and these bailouts were kind of widely benefiting uh, banks and bankers. Do you want me to take a side? <laughs> yeah, I think economists like to kind of sit on the fence sometimes in the way of arguments. Yes. So if I'm going to pick a side, <laughs> I'll say no to the windfall tax. If, if you're going to have a windfall tax, you really need to make an argument that it's much better to, to have policies and, and changes according to some kind of established longer term rule. How is this going to apply in the future? So you think that there should have been like a, a law kind of before this that stated something about windfall taxes so companies can be sure to take that into account like when they conduct their future operations? Or, yeah, and if you, if you really think this is such a larger windfall than there have been at times uh, in, in oil and energy, we've seen, we've seen oil prices you know, in dollar terms, drop below $20 a barrel, rise above 100 over the course of a year or two. If you want to make a case for a windfall tax now, I think you have to develop a policy of when are these going to, you know, what's the process for how this happens uh, regularly and not be deciding you know, one-off uh, uh, taxes. Thanks so much, David, for chatting with us about all sorts of topical things right now, from bankers' bonuses to windfall taxes and oil companies. It's been really interesting to have you on the podcast for our first ever episode. And stay tuned for next week, where we talk to David some more about quantitative easing and other measures taken by the central bank in monetary policy and how this impacted wealth inequality.